You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. Nobody knows your mission better than you, but sometimes you need someone to help you move the ball downfield. Whether by telling your story a little bit better, creating a fundraising strategy, engaging stakeholders, or improving culture. That's where I come in. I'll bring a combined decade's worth of experience in nonprofits, consulting, and politics to help your organization reach the next level. I practice an internal growth model, which means I work with your team to make strategic improvements using your existing strengths. So if you're ready to take that next step, reach out. You can find me at my website, jshiftman.com, and I can't wait to hear from you. Spread love. Choose a struggle. Hello and welcome to a special Monday episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. This episode features me chatting with Rahaf Kobesi, uh, who I call Ray. Um, she is a Ray. She's a Ray of Sunshine. She's an incredible, incredible podcast host, a, a wonderful coach, consultant. Um, she's she's over in the Middle East and is just doing incredible work. I, I, I'm so lucky that I got to get connected with her and chat for her podcast, which is called Don't Be a Man About It, where she talks to men about their mental health. Uh, she's really, I mean, she is someone who is who is making a very serious difference in the world. We chatted last fall. Uh, I held this uh, for this moment, for, for when I could put it out as a special episode. We really had a wonderful conversation. We've chatted a few times since. She's going to be a guest on this show in the future. But in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with the absolute ray of sunshine, Rahef Kobesi, on her show, Don't Be a Man About It. Hi, everyone, again to Don't Be a Man About It podcast. Today, I have a very interesting guest, and um, we rhyme when it comes to names, Ray and Jay. Hi, Jay. <laughs> Hi, Ray. How are you this Today. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I know it's early in the morning for you now. So good morning. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Jay, I'll, um, before I ask my first question, could you please introduce yourself in the best way that you find? Yeah. So uh, first off, thank you for, for having me. And I love the title of your show. It's, it's, uh, it, it's such a great way to put a spin on what is a very tired expression. Um, my name is Jay Schiffman. I'm a substance misuse and mental health health speaker, coach, and advocate, and the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I'm also a guy in long-term recovery, and, and that sort of colors a lot of the work that I do in this space. Um, you know, I do have a lot of education around this, a lot of training, but honestly, all of that pales in comparison to living through it, and, and that is the best training, the best education that I could ever get. Thank you so much, Jay, for accepting my invitation to be a guest on um, on my podcast, especially to discuss substance misuse. And we'll talk more about it later. I just want to know one thing first. How is your heart doing today? Oh, what a good question. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, as, as you correctly said, I did just wake up about half an hour ago. And so it's still it's still getting going. Um, but you know things are things are going really well. We're 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 it's it, it's it's a tough time for a lot of people because of what's going on with COVID, and especially here in the United States when we're recording this. You know we've broken the record for most cases in this country every day for the last two weeks, and and that's very startling. 
uh, especially with the holidays coming up, because, you know, it, it, it is a time when people want to get together. And that has been sitting very heavily on me. Uh, but I sort of feel conflicted because with everything going on in the country, you know, my work is going very well. And, and, and it is hard to to balance those perspectives. I don't want to minimize the hard work that I'm doing, the importance of the work that I'm doing, but I also don't want to be that guy, you know, going, guys, everything is great for me while, you know, the world is burning around me. It is, it is a struggle. And um, a lot of us, we go into this guilt trip whenever we're doing good in one way or another, we feel guilty because others are not. Why do you think that? Well, that's a that's a great question. And, and and I think that it's, to me, at least it's a positive sign, because if you were one of those people who just didn't care that, you know, you were doing well, and nobody else was, that's a that's a problem that is, you know, of incredible lack of empathy uh, towards towards the people around you, and, the, and especially towards the people that you consider to be, you know, close people in your life. And so, you know, it is it is very difficult to keep those two perspectives. But I also think the sort of larger issue is that we a lot of times want things to be easy when we want things to be black and white, we want things to make perfect sense in a narrative way. And, and life just doesn't work that way. That's just not how how this goes. And so making sure that you are taking time to say, you know what, it's okay, that I'm doing well when others aren't. But but what's more important is how I turn that back around and help other people. And, and especially with the work that you and I do, that is sort of baked into what we're doing here. And, and, and that, you know, at least in my opinion, at least in my experience, allows me to keep a much more level head when things go well, because it's not really about me. It's about the work that I'm doing to help others. 100%. No, no, you're right. I have a sticky note. It's hanged on the wall behind me, which says, I take care of others by taking care of myself. You yep. can't do one thing without the other. So it's very important, just like you said, to at least find the balance. And when I say balance, it's very different from one person to another. So your balance is much different than mine. And it's, there's no just one size fits all when it comes to that. Um, so, well, uh, as long as your heart is uh, feeling less heavier or less heavy day by day, I think I wish you all the lightness in this world. Well, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. That's very nice. Jay, my first question would be, what would be the link or the major link to substance um, misuse to mental health? Well, so as you just said, you know, this is a very personal thing. And, and, and you know, we are learning that every day this is this is developing. I, I was interviewing someone not long ago who I, I asked, you know, I've heard it said that where we are when it comes to thinking about the, the mind, the brain and how everything works uh, inside our own heads is akin to where we were knowing about the body in like the wild west days right when somebody could hang up a shingle and call themselves a doctor while also being a, a lawyer or a, or a, you know giving you a haircut so there is there is new things being learned every single day and, and i asked her why that is and she said one word simple technology the way that the technology is changing today 
it allows us to understand the brain to greater extents every single day. And so, you know, we both were, were sort of commiserating over how 10 years from now, we're going to look back and go, I can't believe we thought X, you know, I can't believe we didn't know Y. So we really are in a truly incredible time when it comes to mental health, when it comes to understanding substance misuse, and really a lot that goes on inside our brain. And, and it's only going to be positive because we're going to have better answers on this. That being said, right now, we still don't know all the variables that, that that contribute to somebody struggling with substance misuse. We know a lot of them, right? We know what, you know, your genetics is huge. Um, you know, perfect example is because I struggled with substance misuse. If I have a child, that child is five times more likely than the general population to struggle with substance misuse. If my wife also did, which she didn't, but if she did, that child would be nine times more likely to struggle with substance misuse. So uh, we know that genetics is huge. There, I never, I knew that genetics played a role, but my question would be, is it, would it be different i'm trying to be very selective with my words but it'd be different so let's say you you had a kid you have a kid and you raised him in a healthy lifestyle you made him cultivate a much healthier way of thinking and lifestyle and you made sure that nothing around him would distract him enough to choose to to go through substance misuse would that be useful or oh a hundred percent and that is a really, I'm really glad you made that, that specification because that's the next piece is the environment is also very big. What, what the difference is, is, is that, you know, when I was struggling myself, and, and obviously we can talk about my story, but it, it, I didn't, you know, there were, there were mechanisms inside my head that compelled me, compelled me to take more than I was supposed to be taking of the different substances that I was prescribed, of the substances that I was choosing to take uh, for fun, for, for other reasons, those mechanisms would still exist inside of someone else's head, even if we if we raise them with this knowledge. So 100% the environment um, and, and the way that they interact with the outside world is a major factor. But you can't take away the piece of you that is always going to have that drive. You know, there's a classic line about people who struggle with alcoholism uh, or, or misuse of alcohol. And that is when you are I, and by the way, I am not sober. I am, I've never had a, a bad relationship with alcohol, thankfully, because uh, I, I personally believe that whiskey is, is sent to us from the gods. But someone who, <laughs> that's, who wine. that's wine and, and wine, I completely <laughs> agree. Uh, you know, and, and I'm thankful for that, right? My wife and I can sit down and have a bottle of wine, you know, have a couple glasses over dinner, and I don't feel the need to have more. But that classic person who's struggling with with misuse of alcohol, you know, when they sit down, they don't want one glass; they want ten, and it's not a choice. They're not making this choice, and it's not, you know, even because they've had a stressful day it's because something in their brain is telling them hey one of these is great you know it would be even better 10 of these and and so uh, that piece would always exist even if we were able to say to that person from a very young age be careful around substances right and, and what's so scary is we don't do that right now at least here in the united states we take the attitude that has been around for generations which is the just say no attitude right don't even you know don't even look at it don't even if somebody says you know offers you drugs you say no and that never worked it never worked because i was just going to ask you so you said it's not a choice 
So that's a mini story just before you share yours. No one knows that about me except for like three to four people. So I have a brother who uh, I don't know if is or was, but he had a challenge with substance misuse. And it was, if I'm not mistaken, more than 11, 12 years ago, uh, I came home to find him handcuffed. The police was just going to arrest, I arrested him basically. And someone died in my apartment because of a overdose uh, injection. And I never spoke about it because in my head or in my mind or from my knowledge, from my perception, I always used to think that it is a choice. So, you know, these substances are not good for you. Why would you go for them? Not only once, not only twice, but three times, even when you were given the chance to recover or to heal or to start a new life. Now you're saying it's not a choice. There's something in your mind that keeps on telling you, go for it, go for it, go for it. So what's the reality? <laughs> well, uh, first off, you know, I'm really sorry that happened to you, to your brother. Um, you know, an, an overdose is, uh, as someone who's lived through one, it's a very scary experience. It's also, it's, it's traumatic, both for you, but for everybody around you, you know, this is, this is akin to in, in the drug using world to a car crash. And, and, um, you know, some people live and some people don't, but even the people who make it through while somebody else doesn't, that leaves a scar. And, and um, you know, I feel very sorry for you and, and your brother for, for experiencing that, that episode. The, the, the reality, the answer to your question is, is very complicated. And, and, you know, is there a piece of it that is a choice? Of course there is, you know, there for most people um, choosing to put the substance in your body, of course, that's a choice. Very few people, although this does happen and, and it's, it's very sad, uh, are forced to have this upon them. You know, somebody injects them with heroin or whatever the case is, you know, for those people, clearly not a choice. Um, but, but if you are choosing, again, going back to my original metaphor, if we don't know that the proper equation, there, there is a very small percentage of people that actually will struggle with substance misuse that use drugs. And that percentage, depending on the study, is somewhere between 5 and 10%. That being said, there's then 90 to 95% of people who use drugs who will never struggle with substance misuse those two people are making the same choice to use or to not use for one group of people, 90 to 95%, the far largest group of people that means, you know, uh, uh, smoking some weed at a party, or of course now in the U S we're, we're considering that not really a drug anymore, which is wonderful. Uh, so we'll say a different example, taking some heroin or, or snorting cocaine or whatever the case is. And then for the smaller group, a very, very small piece of that pie, that means doing it a couple of times and all of a sudden realizing, oh, I, I don't know that I can stop this. And, and so it, it, you're right to simply say it's not a choice. It's not nuanced enough. And, and going back to what I said earlier, we like things to be black and white. We like things to make sense story-wise. Um, but unfortunately, it's not really the case here. And, and until we can learn 
the full spectrum of what of what contributes towards somebody struggling we can't in my opinion judge somebody for struggling with substance misuse because you know uh perfect example is that you and i could party the exact same way you could walk out of that okay i could never recover and eventually i could overdose and yes again we both made that choice to to use substances but I didn't choose to struggle with substance misuse and I definitely wouldn't choose to overdose again. It was horrible. And, and so I think be, until we can understand that a little bit more, uh, withholding judgment is the kindest thing we can do. So you said that I don't wanna go to experiencing overdose again. Do you mind sharing with us the first time? So I also uh, sort of going back to what we were just talking about, I didn't choose uh, when I first started struggling with substance misuse. It wasn't with, you know, marijuana. It wasn't with whatever, right? Uh, it, 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 there, there was not a, a legal drug that I was struggling with. Mine was all prescribed. I, I was misdiagnosed with a pretty severe issue of mental health in my teenage years. Um, and, and because of that, was put on medications that were uh, very uh, strenuous on my brain um to to sort of full spectrum i started taking prescriptions as an 11 year old and wasn't off them until i was 24. so during that time my brain never had a chance to really grow to heal to to evolve and after roughly eight nine or so years i started realizing that i couldn't really stop the prescriptions that i was taking and i was misusing all of them i was taking higher than I was prescribed dosages of all of these medications. And it all came to head when I was 23 years old. I uh, attempted suicide twice uh, by trying to, to force an overdose. Uh, and the second time I did, I, I overdosed. And um, that night was was a blur. Um, I, I clearly survived my overdose, but um, I spent the night handcuffed to a bed at a hospital and woke up the next day in a lockdown unit uh, at a different hospital across town where I would end up spending three weeks. So it was a very traumatic experience. Well, I'm sorry you went through that. And at the Thank same you. time, I am grateful that you did where you get to share your story and experiences and come out of it just the way you did. And something happened to your videos. Yep, I'm working on it. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, wow, the timing, though. Um, there we go. When I listen to these similar stories, um, it makes me think of how much resilient we are as a human beings. I've heard a lot of stories like yours, um, a lot of people, and then it becomes a choice. So the struggle might not be fully our choice or our decision, but to recover and to make the best out of it is. So thank you for making that decision today or else we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> That's true. Um, and I, I really, I just want to say, I really like the way you put that. That was, um, you know, there, at some point you do regain the opportunity of choice. And that is literally the, the title of my of, of my company and my podcast. It's my hashtag, choose your struggle is, is all about that. It's recognizing the places that you do have a choice and, and making the choice that benefits you. 100%. And by the way, your podcast 
podcast's name is the reason why I reached out to you in the first place. <laughs> well, thank you. Really, pick, like you, uh, you look at it, I was like, wow, okay, choose your struggle. I would. <laughs> so, Jay, tell me more about. So, you said you were having a mental health issue as an 11 year old boy growing up to. 23 years old with the same struggle, with the same medications. All I could think of is how is it possible that the doctors could not see that coming? That's one. How is it possible that you did not have the right support system to tell you that, hey, listen, you're taking this medication for that reason. These are the outcomes or possible outcomes or um, what do we call it? The, I forgot the effects, the after effects. Um, why were you not having the right educational support? Um, I don't know, I'm, ha I'm having too many questions. Like why, <laughs> why? And that's the first part. And the second part was how did it affect you? So you were taking a prescribed medications for your mental health, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure that it affected your mental health even worse. Yep. So please. Yeah. <laughs> Let me, so you're right. There, there needs to be some more explanation in there because on the face of it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And unfortunately, it doesn't make a lot of sense even when you hear the story. Um, what happened was uh, I was born in the 80s here in the United States. And between the mid 80s to the mid 90s, uh, the, the amount of people treated for what we call ADHD or tension deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is an umbrella of disorders all around um, hyperactivity, the inability to focus, that kind of stuff. That number jumped from roughly 300 to 400,000 children, somewhere in there, to about 2 million children in just 10 years. And we can trace the sort of um, focus on this, this particular disorder through that number, right? This is a very low lying, you know, we're talking 1% of the population starting in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all of a sudden that jumps up to 2 million. Now we're at four and a half million. So our, our, our culture has become focused on this issue. Um, now there's been a lot of studies that show that this is way over prescribed. And in reality, these, this diagnosis is used to treat rambunctiousness in, in kids, mostly young men, but also some young women. Our education system is very antiquated. It, it was sort of built around the harvest time, if that tells you how old the education system in the United States is. Um, but instead of changing it, because it's very hard, this is a mammoth industry, the education system. Instead of changing it, they have found it's much easier to just try to treat kids to make them focus uh, and do something the kids aren't meant to do, which is focus for long periods of time. So again, this, a lot has been done around these, this sort of boom of this treatment. Where my story is, I get diagnosed with this at 11 years old. And I was a rambunctious kid. You know, I was unthoughtful. I was the poster child for, for what, how they treat this disorder. Um, but during the late 90s through the early 2000s was sort of the uh, epicenter of where the drug companies were trying new medications. And from 11 to about 15, I was on five or six different medications. Uh, every time they tried something new, my therapist would go, great, let's try this one now, you know? Um, and, and so I wasn't on anything for too long. By my mid-teens, they had settled on one, and I was on that for another about 10 years. But, but those four or five years in between, before that, I mean, I was on everything, everything that they came out with. 
Now, all these medications have side effects because all medications have side effects. That's just part of medications. Unfortunately, we, you take the side effects of these medications. You take the fact that I was a, a young teenager going through puberty, and we all remember how much fun puberty is, and, and, and the changes going on in your brain during this period that are normal. And then you take the fact that I've always struggled with underlying low-level issues of mental health, like you know, uh, I've struggled with anxiety and depression, but also OCD, which is a very repetitive disorder and, and um, can be very strenuous on a brain. And you take all that together and it creates a perfect storm. And instead of seeing that perfect storm and going, okay, we need to work on this. My therapist saw that, this perfect storm that he created. And he said, you have bipolar disorder. He saw these symptoms that were being created by this perfect storm of sort of, uh, of craziness, of, of, of absurdity going on inside my brain. And he said, this is a serious issue and you're showing signs of it. So uh, that's where the misdiagnosis piece came in was, was instead of recognizing the, the recipe that he had himself had created, he, he, saw, he saw signs of something larger. And back then it wasn't really common to go and take a second opinion. So your parents never thought of it. That's right. And, and you know what, I'm really glad you say that because that's actually a point that I stress whenever I speak about these issues. My aunt is currently struggling with cancer and every time that she has been told to do something or take something or whatever the case is, she's gotten second, third, fourth opinions. And because of that, she's doing exceptionally well. She's doing amazingly well. We don't do that with mental health. We didn't do it back then. We only do it a little bit more now. And you're right. We never got a second opinion. My therapist gave me the, the same thing as giving someone a diagnosis of cancer. In the mental health world, a diagnosis of bipolar is a really big deal. And we never got a second opinion. We trusted him. He said, I had this. And so I had it, you know. Um, and, and that's a great point, Ray. And I'm really glad that you, you said that. Thank you for sharing this. No, Dami. Hmm. All right, so I have two more questions, but let's assume that, is the doctor still alive? Is the therapist still alive? Do you know anything about him, her? Now, as far as I know, he's still alive. Last time I saw him was about four or five years ago. I don't live in my hometown anymore, so I, I, I don't have the chance to run into him. Um, but, but it, you know, it's, we haven't ever sat down to talk about this. Uh, and, and between you and me and the listeners, for a long time, I, I was I was very hesitant to see therapists after this experience. Obviously, you know, it was I would go in to see one and go, you know, one of y'all almost killed me, so we're not going to get real deep here. And and it took it took finding a therapist who would work with me on that and who I could trust. And we finally got to a point where she said, because I was carrying around some anger and, and some resentment towards. If and, otherwise, and, I wouldn't believe you anyway. Yeah, well, but we finally got to a point where she said, what is it that you'd want out of him if you had a chance to sit down? And I didn't want him to go to jail. There was not that 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 piece of me wasn't there. But what I wanted was accountability. I wanted him to look at me and say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. And this therapist helped me understand, number one, he's never going to do that, because if he did that, then he could go to jail, admitting that he overprescribed. That is a it's a, a, a really serious offense. That's number one. Number two, 
she said, why do you need that? And I didn't have a good answer for it. And she said, his approval shouldn't matter to you. His apology shouldn't matter to you. Yes, of course, it would be wonderful if he could look you in the eyes and say, I screwed up, I'm sorry. But if you live the rest of your life hoping for that, you're going to be waiting a long time. And thankfully, our work, through our work, I was able to get over that to a point where, you know, it, the only part of me that wants to see him held accountable is that I still fear that he's doing this to other people. And that piece I am worried about. But for my own sanity, I've, I've been able to reach a point where it's not that important. How about if we do it the other way? Instead of him looking you in the eye, why don't you look him now in the eye and tell him what you want to tell him? <laughs> Well, so that's another thing that was suggested by a different therapist was to write him a letter. And, and you know, the, the, the part that I would actually say to that instead is that I would show him things like this. I would show him, you know, my, my uh, recorded speeches. I would show him my podcast. And I would say, I hate that it took, you know, you doing this to me to, to make me able to do this. But I want you to see that, you know, I was able to overcome, I was able to turn, you know, your criminal activity into something inspiring, into something that's helping other people. And, and that's the piece that I think is the most important is helping him know, you know, he broke me, but I was able to come back from it. It's funny, the word that you used, he broke me. Do you still see yourself as a broken man today? I, I don't, I, well, except in the sense that I think we're all broken in some way, but in, in the terms of the way that he literally did to me, you know, uh, there is still, uh, unfortunately, a diagnosis in my permanent record somewhere that says I was once given the diagnosis of bipolar, that won't go away. Um, and in that piece, you know, is something that I'm sure I'll have to wrestle with at some later point, you know. But in terms of how it's actually impacted me now, you know, I've been able to thankfully overcome all of that. And now you're married, right? I am. You're married. And is your wife okay with everything or every part from your story? I'm assuming she is and she's supporting you. But for you as a man, do you see it very easy for you if you felt like crying to cry, if you felt <laughs> like going back to the past and not dwell on the past, but just look back and say, wish things were different. Because we all do that. We're all humans, no matter how much we reframe our thoughts, but we still have these minutes or moments when we are um, alone. I wish that did not happen. Do you, do you feel comfortable crying? Do you feel comfortable saying that I'm not okay? Do you, because I know it's different for a man and so what, what, uh, how is you treating yourself in that area? Well, so first credit to my wife. Um, before our third date, uh, actually, I sent her, I had given a speech on this not long before. And uh, I sent her that speech. And I said, I want you to watch this before we even, you know, go out another time. And uh, she did. And, and she had questions. And, and we talked. And you know, she's a very um, empathetic person already, so that was helpful, uh, and also a very educated person, she, so she was able to take it in an in a interesting way. Uh, so she's been very supportive in terms of everything that I do and, and you know, being an open and vulnerable person. You know, I, I she is obviously very okay with me expressing emotion, and we have um, 
conversations that I think we're able to go deeper because we're both able to open up in that way. You know, to your particular thing, I don't cry that often, mostly because I do a lot of work every day to make sure that my emotions are expressed before they build up to that extent. That sense. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, so I do, uh, I have three different um, uh, wellness or, or mental you know, check-ins throughout the day, um, you know, including one of them where I specifically sit down and write through all the things I'm feeling. And right. that way it allows me to release some of that energy in a, in a, in a productive way. Uh, as I say to clients, you know, think of your subconscious as a, as a garden and, and you can't know how to get down to those weeds if you don't know they're going there in the first place. So doing exercises <laughs> like that for your, for your mental health, um, you know, there are ways to practice mindfulness without meditating, essentially is what I'm talking about, because I, I do meditate. I just don't get the benefit from it that I want to get from it these other exercises have allowed me to get that benefit. And, and, and that one in particular, I think is incredibly helpful um, because it, it allows you to, to treat what's going on down there in a healthy way. I love that you journal. Thank you. <laughs> it's one of my favorite ever activities. Um, I love that. Yeah. One more question, if I may, and sure. it's been running over and over in my head. Um, as an ex-substance misuser. <laughs> what are the judgments or the myths that you used to face from people, but they are not correct? So we all have these assumptions and we all have these judgments, especially when we know that someone used to use drugs. So what would you want to fix in people's eyes and judgments? Like for me, oh, man. The, one of the two things that I could think of just at the back of my head, because I, I know my brother, that he's not trustworthy anymore. Mm -hmm. so is that correct? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. There's so many. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's the stigma around uh, struggling with substance misuse and mental health. Um, they overlap a lot. Of course, they're very different in some ways, but it, but they're both very alive and very real. Uh, and I would say that, that that is actually the number one thing that I do. You know, my, my work, you know, is, is for the most part focused on storytelling, on, on vulnerability. And, and all of that is, to, is seeking to end stigma. And uh, for people who don't think it's that big of a deal, stigma keeps people from getting the help that they need. It keeps people from trusting people, from, from seeing us as human. Um, you know, and, and, and by the way, I'm guilty of this too. I, I said this when I was on stage for the first time, the very first time back in 2015, uh, I was five years in recovery. And I said to this, this group, I said, and by the way, I'm not blaming all of you. When I picture someone struggling with substance misuse, I don't picture me, you know, I picture the, 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 the person that the media has told us that person is that the person that movies have told us that person is, you know, the, the homeless person sitting under the bridge. That's a very small segment of those who struggle with substance misuse. The rest of us look like me. And, and yet even I didn't picture that after having lived through it, that's the biggest that's the scariest thing is that even that, that, that image has been created to such an extent that even living through it, I still had that stigma. I still had that view of people struggling with substance misuse. And that allows people to separate themselves. 
You know, yes, I may have struggled a little bit, but I'm not those people. There's always a those people. And, and as long as there's someone that you can other, as long as there's someone that you can put the, the greater ills onto, it's, there's no motivation for change because, okay, I may have you know, messed up a little bit, but those are the real people that are struggling. The fact is we're all the same in this, whether you struggled with alcohol or you know, prescription pills like me or cocaine, whatever the case is, we all went through similar experiences and, and very different experiences, but we can all learn from each other. And we have to understand that we are seeing each other as a community here. And, and that's where, you know, when you get into to, uh, recovery methods that say, well, you know, you, yes, but we're not like you, and which is you hear a lot from, from uh, certain people who go to AA or whatever the case is, that's not helping anybody, right? The, the most helpful thing we can do is see the shared connection and see how we can help each other. Thank you for that. Welcome. <laughs> so anything else you'd like to add to any man who is listening to this, who is either, so it's very interesting, this episode is very interesting where we're, we're having two sides of the, or two perspectives, like the person who struggled from someone uh, misusing substance and from someone who already <clears throat> was in that shoe. So what would you like to say to both people, to both types of people, um, men struggling because I, it goes without saying that loneliness, depression, um, going bankrupt, getting a divorce, all of that, um, they're not the reasons, but they could be the starter of misusing the substances. So what would you want to say to these kind of men? Yeah, well, you're right. And, and, and they are a piece of that equation that I was talking about before. Of course, what's happening in your world contributes. And, and we as men have been taught that vulnerability is, is, you know, a failure. It's a sin amongst men, you know, women still for, for y'all, y'all aren't, don't get to show all the emotion that you should, but it's better. You get to, if, if, if a woman is just needing a moment, that's a thing that we accept in society. If you see a dude crying on the side of the road, something has really gone wrong because that's not an acceptable action in our society. And I, even amongst close friends, this is still an issue. You know, I, I use this, this study a lot because it absolutely knocked me on my ass when I first read this um, back in, I read this back in like February or March. 93 to 95% of all male relationships revolve around three topics. Can you guess what those three topics are? Hmm. Sex. Women, but sure. Number okay. one. <laughs> Substance, misuse, um, cars, mm -mm. cigars. No, but I love, it's very interesting what you're guessing <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, like what would be those topics for men? Honey? Traveling. Um, money, stocks, I don't know. Wow, you hang out with some really interesting men. I got to meet these, these men in your life. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, three, the three topics are, you guessed women. Okay. Women is number one. Sports is number two. And mm. um, movies, media, TV, that kind of thing is number three. And if you include video games and music, which are kind of number four, it's 99% of conversations between men. Oh, wow. So 
this story was all about how they were interviewing guys. You know, one guy had been divorced for a decade and none of his friends knew. Another guy was literally homeless and had never told his, his best friends because they never asked. So, you know, these are the kind of things that we teach men is talk about these subjects, but not literally everything else in your life. And I read that and it made me really sad. And I immediately text all my closest guy friends. And again, this was, this was back in February or so. Um, and, and I was I, uh, just over a year out from my own uh, wedding. So I text all my groomsmen and I said, I just read this. Uh, from now on, I have a rule. We can talk about these subjects because obviously they're great subjects, you know, and I'm a big sports fan, but we're then going to talk about other things that actually matter. And it has created a much closer friendship amongst most of the guys in that group. And, and I, that is my call for all men listening is that I can tell you not a single one of them was like, Ooh, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. There have been some that were a little more resistant and it took a little bit more vulnerability on my part to get them to open up, but nobody was like, dude, get out of my life. Right. But it takes you opening up first, you know, and, and I, again, this is something else I teach and preach on, on stage. If you want someone to be open with you, to truly be open with you as a person, you don't beat it out of them. You don't force them to be open. You do it by showing them that you are someone worthy of being open with. You be open with them first. Say, hey, this is what's going on with me. And they may not respond immediately that moment, but maybe a day later, a week later, whatever, they'll go, hey, you know, I was just thinking, and then they'll tell you what's going on with them. So that is my message to men. Be the change that you want to see in the relationship that you have with your friends. It has to start with you. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, Thank you, Jay. Again, that was a really... um, I can't find the word to be very honest. I don't want to say interesting because we weren't talking about a movie or a Disney trip, but it's definitely was enlightening for me to, to, to maybe not maybe it did change a lot of the things that I used to think it changed my perceptions. I might send my brother a message after this. You never know, but I'll keep you updated. I hope so. (laughs) Thank you again. I'll see you very soon. And until we meet again, stay tuned. Bye. Thank you, Ray.